To me, the general concept of butterfly brings to mind a picture of the monarch. Beautiful black and orange creatures that I can't even remember learning about. They've been in my brain so long. I've written about them more than a couple of times, and every time I learn something new. I'm Shauna Doby, editor of Canada's local gardener magazine, and this is Flora and Fauna. Last year, an event called Meet the Monarch was put on by the Master Gardeners of Ottawa Carleton and won a contest for Master Gardener groups in Ontario for the Year of the Garden. Today, I'm talking to Julianne Labreche, a Master Gardener who was coordinator of Meet the Monarch, and Joan Harvey from the Monarch Teacher Network. I could have talked to these fine folks for hours. Listen in on what they had to say. a little bit about yourself, Joan. Okay, I'm a retired teacher. I'm mm-hmm. from the Ottawa Carleton District School Board in Ottawa. I was involved, got involved in Monarchs with in about 2004 when I went to a workshop put on by the Monarch Teacher Network. And since that time, I, I got very involved in the network and have been doing workshops to teaching to other teachers. And what we did was we used the Monarch as a vehicle to teach about language arts, math, social studies, history and so on. Then we uh, we stopped doing the workshops in about 2010 because we couldn't find the livestock outdoors. Uh, there wasn't any around. So we decided let's get into habitat. So we started into gardening. And there's three of us in in the Monarch Teacher Network in Ottawa. And we do workshops now for um, gardening uh, groups, uh, for retirement homes, anyone who wants to learn about monarchs and planting a habitat, we're there. How about you, Julianne? Like Joan, I'm not a professional scientist. I was actually um, a speech pathologist. I worked in a hospital. But like Joan, too, I retired and I developed a real passion, a real curiosity uh, for nature and for gardening. So I've been a master gardener with Master Gardeners of Ottawa Carleton for about 15 years now. I have a few other titles as well in terms of my passion for gardening and nature. But the bottom line is uh, during the pandemic, I wanted to do something to make a difference. I have a monarch pollinator garden myself. And so I rallied our master gardeners and we sponsored an event. We organized an event called Meet the Monarch. And it was really designed not just to celebrate monarchs, but to celebrate insects and biodiversity. And I knew that I wanted to have some partners. And the first person I reached out for was you, Joan, because I knew you'd be perfect for this kind of an event. It was a a family fun day, an educational day. And I knew there'd be no one better than Joan and her fellow teachers to inspire and teach us about monarchs. And in fact, that event won the recognition from the Master Gardeners of Ontario last year, didn't it? Yes, it did. We were very fortunate. Uh, it was a it was a wonderful day. The weather did not cooperate, unfortunately. It was a cold day, and the activities were mainly outside. But nevertheless, it was so much fun. People of all ages came. We had some people from the Algonquin, the Anishinaabe community, who came and did some drumming and told us some stories, uh, their own stories about butterflies. 
Uh, we had different activities for children, including uh, Joan and her teachers group doing a delightful little play. Uh, Joan, I remember you were uh, Monica the Monarch. Absolutely, with Dr. Lepidopatra. <laughs> it was so much fun. <laughs> the Monarch Teacher Network joins a pretty big collection of organizations in Mexico, the U.S., and Canada that are dedicated to monarch butterflies. There are also the Monarch Joint Venture, the Xerxes Society, Monarch Conservation, Save Our Monarchs, Monarch Nation, Farmers for Monarchs, and the Monarch Joint Venture. And that's just without counting organizations based in Mexico or more local organizations. Milkweed is a very special plant for monarch caterpillars. And before I get into that, I should say that every caterpillar is a specialist. Every species of caterpillar is a specialist. They each have their own what we call host plants. And a host plant is what the larvae eat, the caterpillars eat. The reason uh, the, mon- or the monarchs have chosen milkweed is has a, a sap, a milky sap in it, which is has cardiac glycosides, which is toxic to other species. It becomes very bitter and any birds or mammals that will eat the mil- uh, caterpillar become quite sick. So it's a protection for them. It turns out the monarch caterpillars themselves need a bit of protection from milkweed defenses. First of all, milkweeds contain latex, which is sticky. It can gum up the chewing parts of tiny first instar caterpillars, and in fact, about 30% of them will die this way. The milkweed latex flow increases when a caterpillar starts eating it. The milkweed doesn't want to be eaten after all. Caterpillars can get around this by eating the mid-vein in the leaf first, which cuts off the supply of latex. They are very clever little creatures. There are many different kinds of milkweed. There's over 100 in North America. There's 14 different kinds of milkweed in in Canada. And the milkweed varies. Uh, It will grow anywhere, in dry areas, swampy areas. The type of milkweed you have depends on the climate and the location where you are or where it's growing. We have in Ontario, I think, the best ones are common and swamp milkweed. I know swamp milkweed is common in Nova Scotia, and I've seen it in Manitoba. Some of the people in our area swear on swamp milkweed. I have it in my own garden, Joan. There's some great milkweeds for gardeners like myself. Uh, so they're all the Asclepius family, of course. Mm-hmm. So I have the butterfly milkweed, which is called the Asclepius tuberosa. And I have the swamp milkweed, which its name represents really the fact that it does like wet, moist conditions, but it will grow quite well in my garden. That's Mm -hmm. the Asclepius incarnata. And then, of course, the common milkweed, which has those big, tender, juicy leaves that the caterpillars just love. I think it's important to say that if you're going to have a garden for monarch butterflies, you want to have some good milkweed that grows well in your own native areas. Do they prefer some milkweed over others? It just depends. It just depends where they are, what they like. Mine seem to prefer common in my in my backyard. And we also uh, have a garden down in our local park. They seem to prefer the common. I think it's a matter of taste, whatever appears the juiciest and the freshest to them. That's absolutely right, Joan. I've noticed that too. They like those juicy, tender leaves. When the leaves get older, when they're not so interesting, then they move The female monarch shows preference when laying her eggs on particular milkweed plants. She lays the most eggs on swamp milkweed and common milkweed, and the survival rate for her caterpillars on these two species is high. 
She chose poke milkweed, showy milkweed, and prairie milkweed less often, but the survival rate of the caterpillars on these was also high. Tall green milkweed and honey vine milkweed were chosen about as often as showy prairie and poke, but the survival rates for caterpillars on these species was low. And increasingly, the two species monarchs laid eggs on rarely the beautiful orange butterfly milkweed and the whorled milkweed nonetheless showed high rates of survival for the caterpillars. These results are all from a study in Iowa in 2016 and 17. They do correlate with what Joan and Julianne have noticed. Can you describe the life cycle from egg to chrysalis? Okay, well, the monarch butterfly lays about 400 eggs, and she lays one egg per one milkweed plant. And she lays that egg on the underside of a leaf, and she glues it to the underside of the leaf so it sticks there, which is good. I think rather amazing. Uh, that egg lives for about, or it stays in the egg shape from three to five days. When the little caterpillar emerges, it eats its shell because it needs the nutrients. Then it forms into caterpillar, which takes about 10 to 14 days. And they go through what they call five instars, where they shed their skin. They're like a snake. They have an exoskeleton. So they have to, uh, as they grow, they get bigger. They have to stretch. The uh, outer skin of the caterpillar comes off and they have, they emerge. On the fifth instar, they form a chrysalis. And how they do that is he's eaten, he's full, does what we call a walkabout. And he finds a, an area that he feels is safe. It could be near, it could be quite far. He could climb up a tree. I've seen them on a tractor. Tractor wheel one formed chrysalis on a tractor wheel. Anyway, what it does is it puts a little, what they call a silk button at the top, and it puts its rear end into that silk button and it hangs. And then when it forms what we call the J, it stays there for about a day. Then it goes straight and it, uh, this outer skin from the head up cracks open and it moves upwards. And underneath is the pupa. And it takes a couple, it happens very quickly. You always miss it. You think you're going to see it. You always miss it. Then the, as the pupa hardens and it wiggles around as things are getting going inside, it hardens and it takes about a day to really harden. Then it stays in that way for about 10 to 14 days, depending on the temperature. The day before it's going to emerge, the butterfly is going to emerge, it turns black and you can actually see the wings inside. That's really exciting. They usually come out the next morning and as the chrysalis softens, its legs start to move and it pushes out and the chrysalis comes out. The head is at the bottom of the chrysalis. So then the wings and the abdomen come down and there you have your butterfly. Now uh, it takes about, I always thought it took two hours to dry. According to some other literature I've read, it takes 15 minutes. I leave it for two hours. I'm not going to touch it because it's very vulnerable at that point. And then you have a butterfly that um, lives for about two to four weeks, depending on the time of year and where it is. Of course, the migrating ones live longer, but that's the life cycle. Have you ever seen video of a monarch coming out of the chrysalis? It has a really fat body when it first emerges. That's because the body is filled with fluid that the butterfly pumps into its wings to get them to their full size. If you watch, you can see the body rhythmically contracting as it becomes gradually thinner and the wings straighten out. The thing that always amazes me, Joan, is that that female butterfly lays about 400 eggs. Very hard working when you think that um, female is laying one 
small little egg on the end of a milkweed leaf and then moving on and doing it again. And of course, most of those eggs don't survive, right? So many are eaten by predators. That's right. There's only about between 2 and 10% monarchs that survive from egg to adulthood. That's why she has to lay so many eggs. And you've got to figure out how much milkweed has to be around. That's such a good point, Joan. One thing I always tell gardeners is, Don't just put in a few milkweed, put in as many as you can, Mm -hmm. because this is the host plant. It's so important for the monarch. If we didn't have milkweed, we wouldn't have monarchs. So depending on the size of your garden, I say, you know, try and put in eight, 10, or even more if you have a large space. Mm -hmm. Put them at the back of the garden, because at the back of the garden, they're a little bit more sheltered there, a little bit more protected, but plant those milkweeds. They're pretty easy to grow. They're a, a native plant, and so they don't need a lot of babying. But I think one mistake a gardener will make is they just put in a couple. You need to put in a lot. And then of course you need all of your nectar plants as well. Right. Because uh, the, the adult monarchs feed on nectar. They don't feed on, on the leaves of milkweed. No, though they do, they will feed on the blossom of the milkweed, which mm-hmm. smells, it's a beautiful smell. It's just really aromatic. I love the smell of common milkweed. Uh, the butterfly weed, which is another type of milkweed, which we often plant in our gardens here in Ottawa and in Ontario, has a beautiful orange blossom. It's it's lovely to look at and really attractive in your garden. I've never seen any monarch caterpillars on it, but hey, it's a beautiful one to look at. And the swamp milkweed, of course, is uh, grows in clumps and it's got lovely pink blossoms. I found a lot of caterpillars like you, Julianne, on my swamp milkweed as well. I really love the swamp milkweed. You're right. The the butterfly milkweed is a real showstopper. That's the kind of thing that gets passerbys to pause and reflect and you get talking about monarchs and gardens. But I think it's the swamp milkweed in my garden that is, it's big, it's dramatic, and it brings in the monarchs. If you're planting milkweed from seeds, you need to know that they require cold stratification. In nature, they're accustomed to spending the winter outside, and the seeds will not grow if they haven't been in the cold for a bit. If you need to plant them in the spring, here's what you have to do. Get an open growing container and fill it with saturated but not dripping growing medium. Place your seeds just under the surface and store the whole thing uncovered in an out-of-the-way place in your fridge for 30 days. Make sure that the medium does not dry out. When the month is up, plant the seeds either in pots or outdoors. If you plant them in pots, plan to plant them out when they are about three inches high. They don't like to be disturbed once their tap roots have grown down a bit. On the other hand, you could just plant the seeds in the fall. Yeah, I know a lot of people are hesitant to plant common milkweed because the the roots go so far underground and then they spread by runners. But, you know, they're easy to pull out if you don't want them in certain spots. If you're mowing the lawn, it mows, it cuts it down. And it used to be, of course, uh, considered invasive. Well, that was from the farmer's point of view because it was out in the crops and so on. In the city, it's not a problem. People can control it quite easily. I agree. I, I agree, Joan. It's not a big problem. And It's always um, an irritant to me that we call these wonderful plants weeds. 
because they just are so not weed-like. I mean, they spread and they got their name because they were a problem for farmers. But I think as an urban person, the more we can put in these native plants, including ones that sometime end with the word weed, we're doing nature a big favor. In defense of farmers, common milkweed spreads quickly and can kill livestock that graze on it. It also shades plants growing underneath it, which could be problematic if a lot of milkweed is growing in your wheat field. The weed killer glyphosate, known by the trade name Roundup, dispatches milkweed pretty quickly, and that has turned into a major problem for monarchs. Looking online today, though, the first couple of pages of returns on farmers and milkweed were about how farmers are trying to protect the milkweed on their land for the monarch. Maybe it's because of my search history, but I think everybody has come to view milkweed as a necessary and desirable plant. So you have this caterpillar. They start out really small, don't they? Yes. When they, with the egg, it's the size of a, a small pinhead, and they're, they're almost invisible when you have to sometimes look at it with a magnifying glass and they end up as they eat meat, they end up about two inches long when they're finally at the last stage as a caterpillar. And that takes about two weeks? Two weeks, 10 days to two weeks. In the heat, it can go 10 days, but in depending on the temperature, it is. Yeah, it takes about two weeks. That's amazing. It is actually when you think how small they were to begin with. I mean, if we were the size of a caterpillar or when it's first born, I'm not sure how big we'd be. Maybe as big as an elephant. I don't know, but we'd be huge. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of wheat, the size we've grown. When you look at a chrysalis, and I've seen pictures of a lot of them, there's gold on them. Do you know what that is? Yes. It's very interesting on science. I, I want to get to talk a little bit about scientists because it took a, a million, the butterflies have been around for about a million years. And so they they perfected their system. Scientists have only really started to study the butterfly in the last couple hundred years. And we're still, they're still trying to figure it out. And the little gold flecks, some thought were used for oxygen, some thought they were for coloration. But the latest theory is now that they're actually hormones to help in the development of the adult as it's in the chrysalis. It's also it's also the theory has been put forth that, of course, they reflect light, that maybe this wards off predators. So there are a couple of theories. And there's 12 of these gold, these glands. Now, they're actually not on the outside of the chrysalis. They're actually slightly underneath it. But the, the way the light comes in is reflected on these glands and hormones. Then it comes out as gold. And it it is beautiful. I mean, the monarch is one of the few chrysalises that is an emerald green. And then you have this gold around it. And it's, it's beautiful. It's a piece of, it's a jewelry, really. Mm-hmm. It's so gorgeous. And I think that's why people get attracted. One of the reasons why people are attracted to the monitor, because the chrysalis is so beautiful. But isn't nature amazing that it's done that? Thinking of the way a monarch chrysalis looks, I started to think of what beautiful jewelry it would make. So I looked it up and to no surprise, found several Etsy sites selling monarch chrysalis earrings and pendants. Not the real thing, but a ceramic lookalike kind of thing. Some of them are very realistic looking. I decided to finish this podcast before getting my credit card out, though. And it's time for us to metamorphose into a break right now. What do you have to say, Ian? Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and fauna, a new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. 
We're back, and Joan Harvey is just about to describe the difference between a chrysalis and a cocoon. It's the way it's formed. Of course, cocoons are for moths, chrysalises for butterflies. And as I mentioned before, the chrysalis is formed when the caterpillar is hanging upside down and the skin splits open at the head and the old skin is pushed up and underneath is the new skin, which forms the chrysalis. A moth cocoon is formed differently. He spins around his body as a protective coating. But I have to tell you about the Cecropia moth, which is a huge moth. It's about six inches across. It's a gorgeous moth. It's brown and orange. And actually, the adults have no uh, mouth parts. I raised these uh, one summer. Someone gave me some eggs, so I raised them outside and they eat uh, maple leaves and lilac leaves from the lilac tree. I'd raised 12 Cercropia moths. I had put them in my garage in the winter and put them in a tight cage so the mice wouldn't eat them. Brought them out in the spring, gave them to the teachers. There were 12 teachers in our school and I gave them each a cocoon. They come out sort of um, an extended oval shape of the cocoon and the uh, moth comes out at the end through a hole goes on a stick in there where it spreads its wings and then it dries and so on. So after it had hatched or emerged, I opened, I decided to cut open the cocoon. And what I discovered was the outer one was sort of like a hard paper with little hairs on it. I cut open that and inside was your typical cocoon that you think of for a moth. I opened that and inside was a chrysalis. Oh, Butterflies evolve from moths. Butterflies have been around 100 million years, moths for two or 300 million years. And the Cecropia has three layers where I think most smaller moths have only two layers. And I've opened a few that I know the moth has left on small ones, and I found that the chrysalis was inside. So, it, which is chrysalis is really another form of the pupa. Pupa is the name given to this stage of all insects that start out as eggs, live in larval form like a caterpillar, then go into a state between larva and adult, where they kind of hide inside an outer shell made of their own bodies. Here's another interesting bit of trivia. The word pupa comes from the Latin for doll. Tell us about the migration. Who flies okay. to Mexico? All right. Well, in the fall, monarchs are broken up between the spring and the fall monarchs. The fall monarchs are bigger because they've got to go to Mexico. They've got to fly. Their hormones are turned off. They're not into reproduction. They're into flight and food. So they take off in late August, early September, and they fly and they get to Mexico uh, around the last day of October. They use the um, the winds, the air currents to, to float on as they get down there because it's a, a 4,000 kilometer trip. They arrive in Mexico at that time and they go into the Olmel fir forest in Michoacan in Mexico and there they stay and they all clump on the trees. And I think this is another amazing thing about the monarchs. There are other species that fly that migrate to Mexico, but this is the only one that does it in one generation and they clump on the trees so you can see them and they look like fall leaves they're so bright and orange and beautiful and occasionally they move but basically they go into what they call diapause and they the reproduction is turned off and their their body temperature is lowered then in about february march they start to become alive and they mate and i'll talk a little bit about the mating afterwards, but they mate in Mexico. And then they, mainly the females, I'm sure there might be a few males, but their job is really done. The females fly and lay their eggs either in north northern Mexico or in southern Texas. They lay their eggs on the milkweed that's there. 
then they those adults die. Those eggs, of course, grow through the whole process, caterpillar, chrysalis. As adults, then they start flying north and ones go into, say, the Midwest. They lay their eggs do the same process again. And then the next generation comes to Canada. Now, if you're in Southern Ontario, I think they usually come around the 1st of June. We're in Ottawa. It's at the end of June. And of course, it depends on when the milkweed has started to sprout because they've got to have food. So they lay their eggs in late June. You have another generation in July, and then they start laying their legs again in, in August, and you have that generation that comes out as the migrating monarch. So there's five generations. Now, this is exciting. Well, it is to me. It seems that the fifth generation of monarchs, which is sometimes called the Methuselah generation because it lives so long, may be cued to travel south by the angle of the sun at solar noon, which is halfway between sunrise and sunset. And the angle that makes them head south is between 46 degrees and 57 degrees. How fast they migrate has to do with the temperature. They move more slowly if that temperature is below 10 Celsius or above 30 Celsius. This is all based on a paper by a whack of researchers that we'll just refer to as Taylor et al. Now, what I found, I've been to um, El Rosario and Sierra Chinqua in Mexico and also to the um, overwintering sites in California. And what was interesting in El Rosario was you have to climb up the mountain. And as we were climbing up, you see these many monarch wings on the ground. And I asked one of the, quote, experts, why is this? And it was explained to me that when they come out of diapause in the spring, they haven't eaten since the fall. Uh, They go down to the little springs or where they can to do on the grass and they start drinking the water and they start puddling in the mud. And they drink the water and they get the nutrients to enhance their bodies especially the males for reproduction. He said, but the males are fighting, uh, start to practice on each other if they can mate with a female, because as we know, it's the strongest survive, right? So the two males, what they do is they latch onto each other and the stronger one can lift the other one. The weaker one falls down and he dies because he doesn't have the strength or the energy. Then that strong male will mate with a female and she can accept him or reject him. He's got to prove that he's strong. She wants only one strong genes for her offspring. They mate, but he doesn't fertilize her eggs. This only happens in Mexico. He doesn't fertilize her eggs. He gives her the proteins and the energy she needs for those eggs. And then they separate. And then the next time she mates, her eggs are fertilized and they then she will go on to Texas and lay her eggs in. Wow. I mean, that just blows my mind about how nature has figured this out, how to enhance these eggs, the first generation. The next generations, they mate. There's none of this uh, exchange of nutrients. They, They mate and they're fertilized. So that's the interesting story in Mexico. And I've been trying to follow up whether it's in the research. This was told to me by a monarch expert. So I can only presume it's true, but hey, we've been told things that we thought were true and have not been proven it. But I thought it was an interesting story to tell you and I've been fascinated by it. You want to go down a rabbit hole? Look into same-sex sexual interactions in monarchs. I don't think there is a consensus on why males will attempt to mate with males, but 30% of pairings are male-male. 30%. I don't know where the males insert their parts, but the act does last the same amount of time as male-female pairings. I also don't know if the aggressor in male-male pairings deposits a spermatophore. I have so many questions. 
males can mate more than once. And I think females can too, though I, I haven't been able to, I know they have 400 eggs. They mate for 12 to 16 hours. And I don't know whether they fertilize all 400 eggs during that time or just half of them. I, I haven't been able to find the research on that. When monarchs mate, they are together for a minimum of 12 hours. They tend to mate overnight and affix to their mates before dark. Something is happening during all that time. The male transfers the spermatophore, which is a kind of bag that contains the actual sperm, into a holding station in the female called the bursa copulatrix. But that is completed at the very end of the act. Females do tend to mate with more than one male partner, and in a study by Zelensky and Oberhauser in 2009, where the researchers put a male and female together to mate, a definite but not complete preference was shown in selecting the second partner in producing eggs. This could be because the second male sperm pushes the first out of the way, but the presence of first male sperm in fertilized eggs suggests that doesn't tell the whole story. This stuff is fascinating. When I was four years old, I told my mom I wanted to be a bugathologist. I think maybe I should have been. The butterflies are in, say, Texas all through the summer or just the first generation? Just the first generation because it gets very hot in Texas. And I imagine the milkweed dies. Mm -hmm. So that's why they move more. They're going to go where the food source is. Mm -hmm. And that's their motivation. Uh, Their motivation is food to reproduce and to survive. And so... Where there's milkweed, they would go. Now, there I should tell you that there are two kinds of uh, monarchs. There's the local monarchs and there's the migrating monarchs. And monarchs, they believe, originally started out in the tropics in North and South America. And at one point, some of the monarchs started to wander off. And they discovered that those wandering monarchs had a different gene in them. The local monarchs are faster flyers and the wandering or migrating monarchs had to give up the speed for long distance flight. And so the local monarchs are still around in many places. The migrating monarchs, of course, are the ones that are endangered. The monarchs started in North and South America. And about the 1850s, out of California, uh, ships were sailing and they went to Hawaii. And someone must have taken some milkweed and planted it there. And then around that time, the 1860s, monarchs started to fly there and get there, whether they went on ships or just flew. Then you ended up having having milkweed over in Australia. And of course, you get your what they call the wanderer monarchs. They've also found that there is milkweed in uh, southern um, Spain and around that area. And that again, someone took the plants over, planted it, discovered that it grew. And monarchs that were migrating north from Mexico must have got on the trade winds And they ended up in Spain and these areas over there. And now they become local monarchs because the temperature is so good. They don't need to migrate. So it's amazing how the monarchs have traveled around the world. And even in North America, monarchs haven't been here forever in Canada. They came with the settlers. When the settlers started to cut down the trees, then you had open, disturbed land, and that's where milkweed grows. And as the settlers progressed, so did the monarchs. And when they they came to Canada, the story is, how did they get their name? Well, the settlers said, oh, they're orange and black like King William. And so we'll call them King Billy's. And then eventually it ended up into the name of monarch. Our history goes along with the monarchs, or their history is trapped in with ours as well. well. In Hawaii, on Oahu, there are white monarchs. The parts that are usually orange are white. They occur everywhere monarchs occur, but in most places they're rare. On Oahu, about 10% of monarchs are white. 
Can you tell me about the monarchs being a species of concern or of special concern in Canada? I can speak about that just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, They were at one point a a species of concern. Now I believe been assessed as endangered. And that's by a group called the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. Their numbers have been going down. They fluctuate. I know they go up and down depending on, on the year and the climactic conditions. But one of the things that I think it's important to do as as a gardener, as a nature lover, is to think about making a difference in your own back or front yard, because we do need to help these monarchs. There's another butterfly called the Viceroy, and it looks quite a bit like the monarch. Do you know anything about the Viceroy and Batesian or Malarian mimicry and all that stuff? Let me tell you what I know, and maybe Joan, because she so well informed, can add to it. But the Viceroy is a bit of a lookalike. It's smaller than the monarch, but it looks very much like it. And you have to look pretty carefully to decide which is which. But as well as being smaller, the Viceroy can be identified. It has a a little black bar that crosses the wing veins in the back of the hind wing. So, So that's how you tell the difference. But I think one of the things that's also important is that the Viceroy does not migrate. It does not make that long trip to Mexico they actually overwinter so that right now, even though my own garden is covered with a lot of snow right now, hopefully they're tucked in there overwintering as young caterpillars. So again, one of the messages to gardeners out there is leave the leaves, don't break up all your leaves, leave them in your garden beds, leave them wherever you can, because that's going to be winter protection, not just for the Viceroy, but for lots of insects. I certainly have lots of neighbors who bag their leaves and you see the big trucks picking them up and and they are eventually composted. But I'm sure a lot of those overwintering insects don't survive. So it's much easier to actually rake them away from your lawn because some of those big leaves aren't ideal for grass. But if you have any flower beds at all, then just move them into the flower beds. And over time, they will start to biodegrade. Of course, the other advantage is that those leaves are, they're like gold when they start to break down because they turn into really valuable compost for the soil. So I've been doing that for a few years. In fact, I've even been sneaking out in the darkness early in the morning to take some of my neighbor's leaves because they're, they're... For any gardener, they're really valuable. I don't think my neighbors would mind. But anyway, I I do like to take as many leaves as I can. You're You're the third person I've heard say that on these podcasts that they go out and they steal leaves from the end of people's driveways. And I'm worried that there won't be any leaves to steal before too long because people are finding out. I think maybe you shouldn't tell anybody that you're stealing them or else you won't have any leaves soon. Oh, it's okay. I came out of the closet a long time ago on that one. (laughs) Every fall, signs would go up in my old neighborhood about leaving the leaves. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want a lawn, Don't leave leaves on it. The leaves will kill the grass or at least make it uneven. I want a nice looking house and that includes a nice yard. Doesn't have to be a yard with a lawn and the lawn doesn't have to be turf grass. But if it is turf grass, rake the leaves. Put them in your flower borders or on your vegetable plot. Do I sound old and cranky? Yeah, maybe I am. To get back to your question on whether uh, the Batesian theory and the Molarian theory, where the Batesian theory is that one species mimics 
another unpalatable species and so therefore gets protection. So the viceroy is an orange color, like the monarch. So physically, they look alike. And people thought they followed the Bayesian theory. But what they discovered is the Malmarian theory is that where both species are unpalatable. And it's only been recently discovered that the viceroy actually eats the um, eats the leaves on willow trees. Inside the caterpillar, he's able to isolate the salicylic acids, which in turns in their bodies and becomes very bitter, and it upsets their predators. So it is like the monarch in the sense that it's bitter tasting. And so birds and other animals say, oh, orange, stay away from me. And there's another species like the queen is like that too. She's orange, but so it's a protection. The other interesting thing, though, is about the viceroy, which is different from the monarch, is, of course, the monarch caterpillar is yellow, black, and white. The viceroy caterpillar looks like bird droppings. So who'd want to go near that? (laughs) Swallowtails as well, don't they? Is it swallowtails that they start out looking like bird poop? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And the the giant swallow, yeah, the giant swallowtail, I've seen it's bird droppings. Yeah. These are strategies that insects use to avoid predation. The monarch and viceroy butterflies use aposematism. Their bright colors mean don't eat me. You see that in frogs, too. The viceroy and swallowtail butterflies use masquerade. By looking like bird poop, predators leave them alone. Another strategy is camouflage. Some butterflies look like leaves. Stick insects look like, well, sticks. About people who will rear monarchs, there there's a whole industry around this now. Let me address that, and then I have a feeling Joan might um, also want to contribute. But as a gardener, my feeling is just go au naturel. Let the monarchs do the thing in their garden. There's some advantages to that because they're in their own natural habitat. Of course, they're more exposed to predators, but they're getting stronger. It is all about survival of the strongest. And the minute you start to sort of try to save more eggs and baby them, essentially, you could run the risk of creating a a weaker generation. And in fact, that's what some of the new studies are showing, that um, these monarchs in cages may not be as strong uh, as our natural monarchs who live in the wild. The other thing, too, is that like anything you take in and try and rear, I think you've got to do it really well. You've got to know what you're doing. And the risk with some of these amateur rearers is that they may not clean the cages properly. You run into problems with parasites. And then when those butterflies are released, they could, in fact, run the risk of spreading disease to other monarchs. Um, So my feeling is just don't go there. Now, I know that it's it's a wonderful exploration for children. You know, it's okay if teachers uh, rear a few because they they inspire kids. They get them talking about nature. But on mass, I would say absolutely not. But Joan, I would be interested to hear what you have to say. Well, as an educator, of course, I did it uh, because I was teaching young children and I reared them inside. And I started that in about 2004. But um, new research has come out. And we find that some of these things aren't aren't so good. I do understand why people want to do it because the survival rate out out in nature is between two and ten percent. And when you're raising them, it raises the survival rate of the monarchs up to eighty to ninety five percent. 
So you're obviously getting more monarchs and we're helping with the numbers. However, people have been doing it inside and they've discovered that the monarchs need to be outside to follow the sun. They need to be exposed to all the elements of the temperatures, the hot and the cold and the wind. And that doesn't happen if you're raising them inside. Now, some people are starting to do it outside in cages and on the milkweed plants. And I think the probably success rate of the monarch is better. But I don't know how they do these studies and whether they can find out whether these monarchs actually find their way down to Mexico. I'm inclined to agree that habitat is important and we should be planting more gardens. But on the other hand, with those who like to raise them outside and are doing it properly, maybe we're contributing a little bit to the monarch population. Who knows? We still make a lot of mistakes in what we're doing. And each time we find something new of what we're doing wrong. You can't go wrong if you're if you're uh, creating a habitat outside. I guess I'm on the fence on this. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not an extremist. And I think there's sometimes more than one way to do something. So my first thing would be to create habitat. And my second, if you're going to raise them, know what you're doing and raise them properly. A few years ago, my husband and I were in Mexico and went on a tour that included a turtle release. Groups of conservationists will protect turtles in the wild and, when they hatch, release the tiny turtles into the sea. The place we went to moved the eggs into guarded holes. There weren't that many people that day, so we released about 100 turtles. You have to wait until dusk when the turtle-eating birds go away. I've got to say, those turtles were so, so adorable. It gave me a new awareness of those creatures. But I went away feeling uneasy about intercepting their lives. I just don't know if it's right or not. We're all supporting these critters that are endangered. And of course, it's not just the beautiful monarchs. It's some of the, the less pretty creatures of, of nature. Some of those insects that may not be so much fun to look at, but they also have a very important role to play. Planting the flowers and so on, of course, have increased the number of pollinators around. The bees, should I call a wasp a pollinator? I don't know. Uh, but anyway. Yes, it is, Joan. It's an important yeah. one. Yeah. I know. Okay. I won't throw it out. Just put it. <laughs> that has had a big impact, I think, on the increase in the number of pollinators that are around. So as you say, it doesn't just affect one species. It affects mm -hmm. many. Allow me to put in a pitch for the humble aphid here. Aphids are very cool little insects that are sometimes farmed by ants, and many of them give live birth most of the time. Some species bear females all summer, then in the fall lay eggs of males and females to sexually reproduce. We've got to take a break now, but we'll be back to talk about monarchs and biodiversity and the International Space Station. Find out what's growing on. Follow Canada's Local Gardener magazine on social media. Explore the colorful world of gardening with us. Discover our special offers and take part in our online contests. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get growing with us. We're back, and here's a question I had to ask Julianne and Joan. Why monarchs? Why are we so concerned about the monarchs? I think it's the poster child for so many things. Um, it's beautiful. It's attractive. It's a large, a good-sized butterfly. You notice it. It's been around for a long while. It connects the three countries together. Canada, the U.S., Mexico. It's 
seen in many countries, so people are aware of it. And because it's endangered, that's a sign that other things are being affected as well. And so it's making us aware of so many facets of what's happening in the world. That's so true, Joan. I think that monarchs are, they're, they're like, the, like the canary in the coal mine, really, because they're so sensitive to environmental changes, changes in temperature and light. They let us know when things are going wrong. They're called an indicator species because they're, they're sending out a message that it's not just about monarchs, it's about all those insects that inhabit our planet. As butterflies and other insects are, are losing habitat, dealing with you know climate change, um, dealing with pesticides, there's so many threats to them. The monarch really becomes a beautiful symbol for some of the things that are going off the rails right now. I guess everybody has their favorites. And it's not like saving the monarch is bad for any other endangered creature. Plus, as I hope you're finding out through this podcast, monarchs are very, very cool. Can you, just as a sideline, Julianne, tell us a little bit about some of the less attractive insect that, uh, I mean, they're all worth saving, aren't they? Even mosquito. <laughs> well, it's funny, the mosquitoes, because when we read some children's books about bugs that meet the monarch, one was called The Bug Girl. Nancy McDonald, one of our wonderful master gardeners, read that story. And I read a book that actually, I it's not going to be a bestseller, but I wrote it myself. It was called Mr. Toad and Friends. And it's all about mosquitoes and how, you know, we want to spray them and get rid of them and they're a nuisance. Who wants to be bitten by a mosquito? But in fact, they also have a role to play in nature because there's lots of birds that eat bugs. And in fact, baby birds depend on juicy bugs and insects to survive. They, they can't eat nuts and seeds and things. And so sometimes it's even those insects that we don't like that still have a role to play. And that's what's so fascinating, really, isn't it, about biodiversity? It's that incredible web where everything is interconnected. Everything plays out together. And um, I think that's really, as gardeners, where a lot of us are heading that way. Because for some of us now, it's not just about beauty. It's not just about grass. It's not just about having pretty plants. It's about making a difference and bringing nature into our gardens. And it becomes endlessly fascinating because you don't just have plants when you welcome that biodiversity. You have all of these interesting things arriving at your garden, things that crawl and things that fly and things that land and get eaten by other things. And so suddenly, as a gardener, you're looking not just at the plants, but at all the things that visit your garden. And that really does make it endlessly fascinating. Supporting biodiversity is so important, but I can't think of reasons for it that don't sound overused or trite. You do it because it may save the human species over time and because it's sad when species disappear. Species have always disappeared, though, and I guess it's always been sad. But don't you feel a bit of shame as a human or at least regret when you think of the passenger pigeon disappearing because we overhunted and destroyed so much of its habitat? That happened in the 20th century. We're nature too, and we're just doing what we're inclined to do, which is spread out. But I don't know. It's just sad. 
Have you heard anything about the monarchs that were sent to the International Space Station? Well, yes, that um, that happened in, well, started in 2009, and I guess they're still doing it now. There were three uh, three monarchs, I think, and four painted ladies, butterflies, that were sent there. And it was to connect teachers and students with space and to increase, get them excited about science and, I guess, space as well. I think the monarchs were in the fourth instar and the um, planted ladies were seven days old. And they sent them into space and they did go through their cycle. Though uh, in that microgravity environment, I believe their times were changed a bit on the length of time that they uh, were as chrysalis and when they came out. But they did come out normally and it got a lot of kids very, very excited about. uh, So they're still doing experiments with it, as far as I know, sending these insects up into space. And it was great. You know what else went up on the International Space Station that might be of interest to gardeners? Tomato seeds. Tomatosphere is a program where seeds go to space and come back, then classrooms at every level from kindergarten to grade 12 apply to get a packet of space seeds and a packet of regular seeds. Both are grown to see if there are any differences. And the other other interesting thing is the painted lady. I think she is an undervalued butterfly. She actually flies further than the monarch does in her migration. Over in Europe, she goes into Northern Europe and then comes down to North Africa. But she's not as exciting as the monarch because, one, she's smaller. Two, when she closes her wing, she's camouflaged. She looks like bark. And three, when she migrates, she does this in successive generations. So that it's not just in one generation from Canada to Mexico. She does it many generations. And when she overwintered, she doesn't really overwinter. So she just goes to a warmer climate. But she is everywhere on every continent except Antarctica. For school children, a lot of teachers get the painted lady larva in the spring and they rear them inside in little cages. The food is all there. You have to do nothing except watch it grow, which is exciting and gets kids excited about butterflies. And then you release them. I think we should be paying just as much attention to the painted lady. I like that little butterfly. Like I said earlier, everyone has their favorites. It would be interesting if they could bring some of the butterflies back after they were reared in space and see, because they haven't. No, because they died. butterflies died. They don't live as long in space. No, it would be really interesting. And I don't know whether they mated in space. I don't think they did. But if they did, that would be really interesting to have their offspring come back. I didn't find anything mentioning that. Did you, Julianne? No, there there hasn't been that much available on that project. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certainly lots of school kids that have become interested as a result of the project. You know, NASA should really talk to us about what they should be doing with butterflies and space. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. As it turns out, several animals have been bred in space, or at least in simulated space situations at near zero gravity. Mice, salamanders, frogs, sea urchins, and fish, for example. The mice were able to conceive in zero gravity, but the embryos failed to flourish. If, if people are, if they have the time, because gardening is some work, there's no doubt about it. It, it doesn't happen just overnight. But if you're so inclined, I, I would encourage people to think about removing some of their turf grass. Because my own observation is uh, I live in a suburban area that grass has always been a lot of work. And the only critters I ever saw, the occasional robin 
digging for worms and crows as well. They like the worms in the turf grass. When I retired, I just stripped, I got rid of every blade of grass in the front lawn. My husband and I did it ourselves. We used a a pretty easy technique called lasagna gardening or no dig to basically we we covered that grass with some cardboard, some newspapers, some soil, a little bit of mulch. It biodegraded pretty quickly. I was able to arrange my garden so that I could put in all of those host plants and nectar plants. Anyway, you know, within three or four months, the magic started to happen. And each year, it's just gotten better and better and better. I I try to put in plants, not just for monarchs, but for other pollinators as well, right from early spring to the end of fall. And I'm really trying to add more native plants. Each year, I learn more about a native plant that works well in my garden. And when I get better at realizing, you know, the the soil conditions, the the light conditions, I try and plant it en masse because the butterflies, like other butterflies and other insects, they kind of like to be in one place. They don't want to necessarily do more work by flying longer distances from plant to plant. So I have some spring ones. I love the bloodroot. I love the wild ginger. In the summer, I have great masses of purple coneflower or echinacea. The black-eyed Susan or the rutabecchia, they're super easy to grow and the pollinators just love them. I think my absolute favorite plant in my own garden is the Joe Pye weed. And again, there's that word weed, but it's big, it's showy, and it is such a pollinator magnet. And then the goldenrods and the New England asters as well. Those are wonderful nectar plants for all our, um, well, especially for our monarchs and those insects and the butterflies that are, are heading south. They're looking for nectar, they're hungry. And so the goldenrods and the New England asters, those are wonderful additions to any garden. So anyway, I think it's one of those things where you kind of get into it and you think, oh, this is interesting. And then it becomes a bit of an obsession. It becomes a bit of an addiction because you just can't wait for spring to get back out into your (laughs) garden and start to move things around and to welcome nature. Julianne makes a great pitch for removing turf from your yard, though I would add only if you replace it with other plants. Paving is not good for global warming. If you have to replace your lawn with something that isn't plants, at least use permeable paving or decking. These are things that let water seep through to the ground instead of running off into sewers and polluting waterways. The ground is there to clean water that falls on it. Let it happen. I'm not the gardener that Julianne is. I came into it late in life and I'm still learning. But it doesn't take much to start a monarch butterfly garden. You you could do it on a 10 by 10 area. All you need is about 10 milkweed and two or three varieties of your swamp, common, butterfly weed, and about four or five nectar plants. And just start there and then you get into it and it grows and you grow with it. With that criteria, and then as long as you have a little bit of water that the butterflies can feed from, you can apply for monarch way station status. And that's important in a sense to get your sign out there. So because people going around your area start to say, oh, what is this? And then you start explaining it and they do it. My monarch cohort 
And I started a community garden down our area. And that has been the most wonderful thing to connect our community together. People come and look at our garden. We have a sign up there talking about the plants. And they say, oh, I could do this too. I could, I have this in my garden. And then all I need to do is add a little few other plants and I can attract monarchs too. And people come there just to sit and watch. We have someone who takes pictures every day of how the garden is going. And we've seen hummingbirds in the garden and different kinds of butterflies. So it's slowly spreading the word to our community that you too can make your own butterfly garden and eventually you'll expand it into more pollinators. And that's what we've done. It's simple and inexpensive to apply for Monarch Waystation certification. Go to monarchwatch.org and fill in their application form. You'll need sun and shelter, two or more species of milkweed, several annual and perennial plants that provide nectar, and a plan to sustain the garden. If you already have a sunny garden, the rest is easy. And that was my chat with two very enthusiastic women about monarchs. I want to thank Julianne and Joan for bringing all of their wisdom to this podcast. And I want to thank Yasmin Conception, our producer, Carl Thompson, our graphic designer, and Ian Leet, our chief cook and bottle washer. Thank you also to the Government of Canada for the funding to make Flora and Fauna possible.